Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. 
total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So that's a long way to answer why (laughs) we don't take risks, Um, but it's fear. And I think if we all stopped to say what's worth more than this fear right now, it's worth it for me to get really embarrassed when I take a risk because on the other side of that risk could be a huge opportunity, could be a great relationship, could be a new friendship, could be who knows money. Like it's worth it for me to feel stupid or get embarrassed or fall on my face. But you have to know that there's something at the end of that. Like if you're just a, a regular person, I'm not, and I'm not saying I'm not regular, but I'm saying if you're just a person who's like, who doesn't know that you can take feeling stupid or getting embarrassed because there's something on the other end of that risk, you're not going to take the risk. You're just going to coast. You're just going to coast. And then for me, what coasting looks like is I just, I've become so small. I've become so, so small of a human being. And I, I, I cannot think, I just, I, I, the visual that I have of myself right now when I am not in feeling open and feeling this way is a shriveled little raisin, a brown little raisin. And I just don't want to live life like a little raisin. I want to live it, you know, one of my clients said like a plump little date. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ishida, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, so happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it is a long time coming. Uh, <laughs> you have been referred to as by many friends, uh, like Sarah Peck, who's a former guest here on The Unmistakable Creative, which says a whole hell of a lot about you and everything that you're up to. Uh, but before we get into what it is that you do, I want to ask you a question that I kind of know the answer to because I read uh, the about page uh, on your website. But oh, God. that is, what birth order were you and what impact did that end up having on your life and the choices that you've made with your life? Ah, birth order. That's so interesting that you asked that. I'm a middle child Mm -hmm. in the sense that I'm a twin. So I have a twin sister. She's one minute older than me. Um, She uses that like 10 years though. She's definitely the older sister. And uh, (laughs) I mean, it's really, really true. I am wholeheartedly the younger sister in this bunch. And uh, how did it affect me? I think it affects every last part of my life. I... um, we're very different. I'm a very big risk taker. And, uh, I have a huge penchant for like uncertainty and taking risks and doing things a non-traditional way, which I've had since I was a kid. Mm. Um, I don't know if that comes from, I think middle kids tend to have 
well, well, you're in the middle, right? You're constantly trying to figure out like your place. Um, and for my entire life, she was very much like the protector of me. Um, so I think that gave me a lot of space to, I think it gave me a lot of space to basically grow my own personality, which is this kind of exploring person. Um, what's out there for me? I have asked kind of bigger questions of myself since I was a kid, like literally, like, what am I here for? Um, it also made me, I have a younger brother who's 28. He's eight years younger. So I was definitely like a protector of him. We both were. Um, so I think I straddle the world of like, you know, being this person that feels free enough to go and do the things I want to do. But then I do also have this sense of like, wow, I'm really in this family. We're very close. Um, I have my brother who's definitely sort of looking up to us and looking at what we're doing and how we're behaving and how we're living life. Um, Cerny, there's a whole Pandora's box here, uh, you know, like about, you know, my relationship with my sister and I and how being a twin is like affected, um, my life as a kid, but then also as an adult in us trying to figure out like who we are as adults, Uh um, being close as twins, but also being very different. Um, so yeah, I think it's affected me in both good and bad ways. And I'm happy to get into both. <laughs> yeah, I, I would love to hear actually. But, uh, <laughs> there's no way I was going to let you. I'm like, yeah, let's keep going. Uh, there's it. a couple of things I wonder. Uh, so when you say middle child, is is the other twin the oldest or is there another sibling? So there's three of us. There's myself, okay. there's my twin sister, and then I have a younger, we have a younger brother. Got it. So, and he is eight years younger than both my sister and I, and she yeah. is one minute older. Wow. So we are the classic two people growing up in the exact same environment and responding completely differently. We could not be more different. Um, she's a psychiatrist, um, an addiction psychiatrist in like the traditional medical sense. Um, she's sort of very straight laced. She likes systems. Um, security is a big value for her. Um, I am the opposite. I'm saying a million ums now I'm hearing it all, but I am literally the exact opposite. I require some structure, but I am always seeking like the outer edges of what feels risky. And for whatever reason, I I definitely did pursue medicine. I was groomed that way. Both my parents are doctors. My mom is a pediatric neurologist. And she said, I have a practice for you. Don't worry about it when you you know, ultimately become a doctor or finish medical school, what have you, um, you can take over this practice. And I mean, that's a great, I feel really grateful because that's a cool thing to have, you know, um, it's a cool path. And at the same time, there was something inside of me that was super uncomfortable with just looking at the options that I had in front of me and saying, yes, let me take that route. Um, I didn't know any better. So I did take that route for a few years. So I had to prove to myself that I could get into medical school, um, to which I did by taking three years and taking that godforsaken test, doing worse each time, <laughs> the MCAT. Mm-hmm. And um, ultimately, though, I think what got me in was after I finally took that MCAT and I said, listen, I'm just not doing any better on this exam. I did something that was a little unconventional and I, um, 
went to the admissions committee and you're not supposed to do this, but they, and they explicitly state you're not supposed to try to woo the admissions committee. You can't even really talk to them. And I said, F that I need to have a meeting with this admissions director. I don't know how much, you know, weight she pulls in this whole thing, but I want to meet her. I want to talk to someone face to face. And so I just did. I like randomly stalked this admissions counselor committee person. And I just went in one day and I just followed her to her office and I brought donuts and I said, listen, Kathy, I'm here. I'm applying to this thing, but I just want to talk to you. And we ended up having a really cool conversation. I mean, we talked about things like I don't even know, like fair trade and her, the outfit she was wearing and just had a little chit chat. And that was fine. It's not like I got in that same day, but I left feeling like, okay, at least I've shown someone who I really am. You know, I'm not just this whack ass test score. Oh, sorry. I'm cussing. Um, fine. Okay. And so, you know, a week or two later, I ended up getting an admissions letter for, to get, to get into that med school, which was Michigan State University. And I thought to myself, I thought, this is so interesting. Like, what? Why did I get in now? And it was just a testament to me. It was like a little notch on this little belt that I had of questions of life. Like, what is possible? And something that I learned that day was just, things are not always as they seem. Systems are there. Rules are there. Everybody tells you not to do something but what's the harm? I didn't kill anyone by going to do this. And I did it. And here, like I ended up getting in. I don't know if I can correlate it exactly, but I, I really do feel like sometimes things are there and sometimes you can break the rules and it's okay. And so it was just like a little thing for me to say, things aren't as they seem. So just trust yourself. So I just like sat on that acceptance for a year. Cause then I got scared. I was like, shit, now I got in. Now what do I do? And then I did a bunch of different things. I, um, I taught, what did I do? I taught English to immigrants, which I really loved. I worked with kids that had autism. And I really learned from that, that I'm really great with kids, but that I really like short-term results also. Um, like with kids that have autism, you tend to see thing, you know, like progress after three months or six months or nine months um, because it takes time to build in that habit. And so I, you know, I think knowing what you don't want or what you don't like is just as important as knowing what you do like. And so I learned things about myself by exploring different things. I taught art to kids after school. I ran an after school program in parts of Detroit that were underserved. Um, and it was like a startup culture. And so I had a lot of responsibility. I, I took care of one of my aunts who my dad has a sister who is mentally and physically handicapped. She's lived with us for um, as long as I can remember, like 25 years at the time. And if there's anything that also has really defined who I am and like my internal constitution, it's, it's, you know, Ronnie auntie, who's my dad's sister. It's her living with us for like, as long as I can remember as a kid. And so I was her sole caretaker for a year. It was the hardest year of my life. It was like, like everything, <coughs> everything from, you know, basic hygiene to helping her eat and helping her walk. And it was extremely, extremely hard. Um, and so I just, I gave myself a variety of, of experiences during that year where I deferred med school. 
Um, and now I've totally forgotten my thread or what your question even was. So please direct me. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're, you're, you're right, right on the right track. I, I think <laughs> what is interesting to me about this is uh, despite, you know, being the child of two Indian parents and having a sister who, uh, you know, turned out very differently in the same environment, something that I, I relate to more than you could possibly imagine, mm-hmm. uh, given that my sister is a doctor as well. Ah. Uh, it, I wonder what is it about you, you think, that uh, just instilled this sort of risk-taking capacity despite the fact that you were in this environment? Meaning, you know, how in the world, uh, you know, despite the, the environment, did you end up, you know, where you're at? And also, what are the kinds of things your parents told you uh, about your career choices in your life while you're growing up? Wow. Those are good questions. Um, I, you know... I am extremely, I'll disclaimer the shit out of this before I say it. I'm extremely grateful for my parents. I never, like they paid for college for me, which was, it gave me a lot of freedom of choice. I think part of my risk taking comes from the fact that I didn't have to figure out how to survive and get a job and pay for school and do all of the things that a lot of people do have to do um, in their families. And so I had that freedom and I'm tremendously grateful to it. I think that's one real post that I can stand on to say why I ended up where I am. And the other co- side of that coin is that I wasn't presented with anything. I was only presented with like, why the hell are you not taking this admissions to medical school? Like the fact that I deferred made, drove people insane. And when I actually relinquished my acceptance, they just could not understand it. It was like I had done, I don't know what. Um, and quite frankly, my parents being as financially and like physically supportive, emotionally were not really there. It was just, it was like very critical, um, kind of like, what are you doing? We were never really encouraged to trust ourselves um, in fact, we were actively encouraged to not trust our own selves and like look to what our cousins were doing or look to what other people were doing. Um, and I attribute this to Indian culture as a whole. I think a lot of ethnic cultures face this, which is like the looking outward to define success mm-hmm. and security, you know, a big part of my parents' value. And I understand why, because they're immigrants is security, financial and otherwise. Um, risk-taking is not a huge, it's not even a value. It's not prioritized. It's seen as bad. So I get why pretty much all of my decisions that I've ever made in life have been confronting, but that in particular, um, the professional decision to like move away from the system of medicine was really mind boggling to them. Um, but you know, they'd been going through it with me for a while because even as a kid, you know, I brought home the book Parents of the Homosexual when I was like a teenager, just for, just to see. I was a big pain actually. You know, I put it on the back of the toilet and I was like, I just wanted to see what would happen. And, you know, of course they just were like, what, what, what are you doing? Why are you, who are you? Like, what are you doing? And I did it because my brother was in the Boy Scouts and I was pissed that they wouldn't, you know, they weren't open to young gay boys. And so they'd known that I was sort of had this streak in me. And I definitely am not the type to say, oh, you told me no, I'll prove you wrong. Mm -hmm. I really don't care. 
I don't care if you think it's a no or if you think it's a yes. I've never been driven by that. I think what has always driven me to your first question of why was I able to take risks, it was never this big rebellious thing that I had to be so different or I had to prove my parents wrong. It was that I feel something inside. I feel there's something bigger. I feel there's this risk that I want to take. I want to confront this like weird discomfort inside. I want to see it. I want to try it. I want to do it. And I will say it's never been easy. It's always been a big, big battle with my, my biggest battle, I will say, in my entire life, throughout my entire life, has been being myself and also being in my family. Professionally, personally, everything, it's still my biggest question. And I've discovered ways of like figuring it out and I have tools to manage. And I've had many conversations with my parents about our relationship. But I will say, 25 years, that's, that's been the question. How can I be myself, my real self, pursue what I feel is important in my life and still be a functioning, harmonious contribution to my family? Um, it's driven a lot of the work that I do. It's driven a lot of how I've pursued that work. Um, whether there's been times where I've like seemed to throw myself at something really risky on purpose, or I've sort of asked the question, what do I feel is bigger for me here? Um, whether I've gone to it slowly or I've gone to it fiercely, fundamentally it's been informed by who am I as an individual and who am I as a part of this like unit? Like, we grew up super codependent, so that's a whole nother Pandora's box. <laughs> uh, which there are going to be so many. This is actually, this is largely why I wanted to have this conversation. I knew it. With you I knew there was an I was like, I want to talk to somebody who I can have an open conversation about this with who actually understands it the way that I do. Uh, you mentioned that you have tools to deal with it. Talk to me about the tools. Talk to me about moments of, of conflict and how you've overcome them. Because I, I wonder too, you know, like as a 40-year-old single Indian male who's about to be at my sister's wedding without a date, it's kind of, you know, I'm like, wow, this oh. is so not what my parents wanted, I'm sure. Oh my God. But I'm also the MC, been... which I realized is like a goldmine of an opportunity, which is how I plan to treat it. Because I realized instead of being mad, I'm going to put all these old Indian aunties to work on my behalf. Wait, did you say an MC? Yeah, I'm the MC yeah. for the wedding. Why are we living the exact same life? I should have been you. I should be your date to your sister's <laughs> wedding. You should have been mine. No, my twin sister just got married in September, like three, four months yeah. ago. I Funny. was MC of their entire. Oh my god, it was like a five hundred person conference for six. Did days. you have to write the speeches for your parents? No, actually, they I did. So, that. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> this time around, they did it. I've definitely done that in the past for them. But no, it was, yeah, and I'm, I'm 37. It was a real sort of shock to the system. Well, my yeah. parents have had to confront it. You know, I should have been married with three kids like 10 years ago. So mm. they've had to understand and work with me around that and all, all of that. Um, and also my sister, like, so she just got married. We're both 37. There's definitely this idea that we have been up against, I would say for a good 10 years of 
our main function goal in life now is to get married, settle down and have kids. Um, and that's not untrue for many of the women, Indian women that I know right now. So tools to deal and manage conflict. I, you know, I don't know. It's still really hard some days with my folks. It still requires me to get into a different state of mind of like, am I being solution oriented here? Or are we going to have the same conversation that I've had for 30 years, Mm -hmm. knowing that sometimes people can only meet you where they are? I'll give you an example. I've probably been having the same conversation with my dad about um, not forcing opinions on other people for 35 years, like literally. And I had to take the last couple years. We had actually a really hard couple years in my family. We had two really hard years. I'll be honest and transparent and say, I just moved back from Detroit. I spent two years in Detroit. Um, specifically working on my family because it was a really, really hard time for us. I just moved back at the beginning of 2018. So it's been a year. Um, and the prior two years I was in Detroit and the prior eight years I was in New York. So, um, and the context on that is I moved back to Detroit at the end of 2015. I had ended a relationship and I went home to like, I went home for three months. I was like, I'm sick of New York. I'm done with this. Let me go back home and heal for a couple months and then I'll be back. And I got home and there was quite a bit of trauma that I didn't realize was apparent in like a middle-class, highly educated family. And there's certain things I can divulge and there's certain other things that I still have not yet dealt with that I'm trying to figure out how to deal with. So I'll talk about Mm -hmm. the things that feel good for me to talk about, but it was really, really hard for two years. I will say, um, every single day was a real struggle with my parents, both in terms of trying to understand their marriage and the ways that they interact with each other, which has really informed myself, my sister and my brothers, a lot of, you know, our views on relationships and what's possible and our struggles and our partners, et cetera. And trying to help my mom, who's a doctor, figure out like her practice and figure out her health. Um, and all of the ways that all of that can go wrong. <laughs> like for two years, I spent a lot of time trying and pushing to create harmony and figure out, I'll put it in quotes, family issues, um, to not much avail. So, so what I can say, you know, like our question originally started with tools and ways to manage conflict. And what I'll say is, after 35 years, or th- let's be, okay, so maybe 30 years, really, 30 years, I'm 37 now, of trying different ways to figure out my parents, to meet them halfway, to get them to really understand who I am, to not seek their approval, to stop all the judging, to feel loved by them, like all of these things, I'm finally come to realize man, I got to give it to myself. (laughs) Like there's a lot of things that I'm seeking and have sought from them that they're, it's just not available. 
I don't know if that makes sense. Like oh, yeah. the, the capacity isn't there, not because they're not deep or conscious people, but because I'm 37 and they're 66 or 67 and they're immigrants. And there's just so many different layers of us just being having fundamental differences that it doesn't make sense to seek it all from them. But I've also had to come to a lot of boundaries and my own self-care and my own practices of like understanding how I respect myself and understanding the relationships that I want to have with anybody, not just my parents and what is, and how am I treated? Um, and I will say, especially because the last two years were so difficult the thing I really had to learn and that I think God was like, listen, girl, if you don't learn this now, like your life is going to suck is acceptance and surrender. I mean, there were days these last couple of years that I would cry for like hours and just not understand how shitty it could be, like how shitty it was. And I had to really come to a deep place of like, acceptance, which does not mean approval, right? So like I can witness things that are going on and get that this is how it is without feeling good, good about it and surrendering my need to like take care and control and fix things and help things and make sure things are okay. And just really get to a place where I was making sure I was okay. So I touched on so many different probably things. Like I don't even know what I'm saying. I, I um, feel like it would. Be, it's kind of really unfair that you have to catch this train at six, seven because I, I feel like this deserves to be a much lengthier well, conversation. Let's, well, let's keep rolling. There's well, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, keep rolling and see. All right. So so many things come from this. Uh, you know, I, like I said, I, I think part of why I really wanted to have this conversation was because I hadn't been able to have it with somebody who had a very similar experience to me. Uh, it, it, you know, on the idea of surrender and acceptance, I think that one of the things that's really interesting about that idea is suddenly the people in your life become a lot less of a pain in the ass. And where I started to see this was when I was thinking about this wedding where I realized I was like, I'm going to be asked over and over and over when I'm getting married. And totally. it's at my sister's wedding. You got to have I a realized, prepped answer. You have to have. Oh, I got I got a prep. No, no, no. I have a prepped solution that's going to work to my benefit. I'll okay, tell good. you. I want to hear it and I'll tell you mine too. Okay. So I realized, I was like, you know what? I was like, instead of making these people annoying, it's time I made them helpful. So when I get up on stage to give my speech, I'm going to say for all of you who want to know when I'm getting married, you can text profiles, pictures, and other relevant information to me at my phone number. And One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. How would you like to look 5 years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. 
Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I'll be expecting a progress report at the end of the day. Monday, for whichever one of you succeeds, you'll get an invite to my wedding. Oh, that's a good one. That's good. Yeah. Might as well put them to work. Totally. Totally. Let's get these people. Let's use them. <laughs> exactly. You have a qualified sales force who's expressed interest in a job. It would be stupid not to hire expressed them. Expressed interest. They would be, they would happily do it. They would spend their whole day doing it. Exactly. So why worry about this when I can have an army of people doing my bidding for me? Yes, I agree. I think you should set up a shoddy.com profile too. And I think <laughs> they should be doing all the vetting for you. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, so that aside, uh, you know, you've said so much in in just you know what you were telling me in terms of surrender and acceptance. 
One thing that has struck me throughout our conversation is the sort of penchant you have for risk-taking, for you know, challenging what the world looks like and not accepting things the way they are. Why do you think people lose that as they get older? Why do I think people lose risk-taking and just the tendency to want to explore yeah. as they get older? I think it's all fear. I think it's literally the voices in our heads from our parents, from our siblings, from our schools that tell us, well, A, all those people are already fear-based. Society is fundamentally afraid of everything. So if all the voices in your heads are coming from this layer of society, everything is going to be so scary. It's scary to take a risk. It's scary to speak up. It's scary to, and by the way, I've been scared. I'm still scared all the time to do these things. But I think, I think it's kind of that muscle is, um, what's the word? If we, if we're not using that muscle, then it's going to leave. And literally no one in society is asking us to exercise that muscle. We're always, always asked to do the thing that fits in. That has been my entire life is how can you fit in better or look like this person or go on this path of success? And, and, and that's why I think for me, it's always felt so fundamentally wrong because I can't hide who I really am. Like I am for all intents and purposes, a weird, quirky, strange kind of human being. I like different things. I, and I, it's very hard for me to hide that, which is why it's always been very hard for me to like say yes when someone tells me to follow this system or to look like everyone else. It's fundamental. I have to do the opposite of what I would normally do. So I think, I think it's just literally like smashed out of us, stomped out of us, like truly stomped. Um, and then I think we get used to it. I don't think as humans, we like to, it's not comfortable to get out of our box or to, it takes so much effort to even break one bad habit. Like if I could stop eating sugar, like my whole life would improve a thousand percent. And I don't know about that, but <laughs> you know it's true. If you stop yeah. eating sugar, your life. Imp- I mean, I stopped for forty-five days, and it was like an amazing experience. And yet, it's so hard for me to even do that. Like, of course, this muscle that I've been practicing for thirty-seven years of not speaking, of not fitting, of fitting in, of doing this is going to be extra hard. Um, and who's signing up for extra hard on a Monday morning? We're all signing up for like, please give me the easiest thing possible. But what I found is I have a really shitty life when I don't have meaning, when I don't have meaning and I lose meaning really fast when I'm on someone else's path or when I'm just asked to follow a system, I really cannot even see a point to doing it. So the meaning for me is sucked out. And then I literally just want to combust into a ball and die. Like there's nothing worse for me. It feels so, so bad. So the only thing that I've realized for myself that I've had to do and I have had to practice, like this isn't easy, I've had to really practice it, is to regenerate meaning for myself over and over and over and over. Every day, every moment of every day. I mean, you lose meaning from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. By 3 p.m., your brain is like in a different zone, whatever. I've had to learn to constantly regenerate meaning. What is going to give me meaning? What is going to make me feel 
like I'm challenging myself? What is going to make me feel like, like doing this next thing is worth it to me? Um, so that's a long way to answer why <laughs> we don't take risks. Um, but it's fear. And I think if we all stopped to say what's worth more than this fear right now, it's worth it for me to get really embarrassed when I take a risk because on the other side of that risk could be a huge opportunity, could be a great relationship, could be a new friendship, could be who knows money. Like it's worth it for me to feel stupid or get embarrassed or fall on my face. But you have to know that there's something at the end of that. Like if you're just a, a regular person, I'm not, and I'm not saying I'm not regular, but I'm saying if you're just a person who's like, who doesn't know that you can take feeling stupid or getting embarrassed because there's something on the other end of that risk, you're not going to take the risk. You're just going to coast. You're just going to coast. And then for me, what coasting looks like is I just, I've become so small. I've become so, so small of a human being. And I, I, I cannot think, I just, I, I, the visual that I have of myself right now when I am not in feeling open and feeling this way is a shriveled little raisin, a brown little raisin. And I just don't want to live life like a little raisin. I want to live it, you know, one of my clients said like a plump little date. <laughs> and, and that's the insane answer that I have for you there. <laughs> oh, these are so good. Uh, you know, there was something you said about parents earlier, uh, which really kind of centered around this idea of approval and, and love and validation. Oh, God. And you kind of arrived at this conclusion of, you really have to, you know, get that from yourself. And yeah. I, I came to the same conclusion when I realized I was like, wow, I'm like, my dad probably is not going to read my books, despite the fact that he's a college professor, because he just doesn't read books, mm -hmm. which is as weird as you could possibly think for somebody who's an academic. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I, I made my peace with that at some point. I was like, okay, you know what? Not a big deal. Like this is, you know, not the end of the world, but more importantly, I wonder one, why do you think people seek so much validation from outside of themselves? What is the role that the world that we live in, uh, where we can be constantly externally validated by people we don't even know uh, playing in all of this? And how do you make that shift from external to internal, which I realize there's no way we're going to finish this conversation in an hour. <laughs> we're totally not going to finish this in an hour. We we'll, no, no. we'll break it up into two parts. For those of you listening, there'll be a two-parter. We'll be continued. Um, I'm going to start with the second part of your question. Cause now I've forgotten the first part. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, the shift from external to internal has been so messy for me. It's been messy and it's been painful because I didn't know how to do it. I don't think we know how to love ourselves. I think as kids, we, we do look to our parents to provide that love, that safety, that comfort. Um, so that is a hundred percent. That was my model for ever was mom and dad, hello, love me for who I am. Mom and dad, validate me for being this kind of unconventional, risky person in the world, not the person that you want. Hello, don't you see? I've like written this magazine and done this thing and this and thing. Can't you acknowledge that instead of always wanting me to get married? 
I mean, that was my stance for so long, but it wasn't really being responsible for, um, I, I don't know what it wasn't being responsible for, but it wasn't the full picture is what I can say. Like I, I actually did. I hired a self-love coach for two years, straight up and down. She's amazing. I hired her when at the end of 2015, when I was going through at the end of a relationship and I was moving from New York to Detroit and I straight up needed help. I just wanted support. <clears throat> and Renee is her name is the queen of self-love and self-love sounds like the cheesiest thing ever, but I will say it's, it's not a soft skill at all. It's the hardest skill. It's a hard motherfucking skill. And it is like the foundation now of like my business, all my risk taking, every professional thing I do, every relationship, romantic relationship that I'm in. It, it is the foundation of everything. Um, even my family relationships, but that road has looked super ugly I mean, I don't think I've cried more than I've cried in the last three years. Like I have lived inside of tears and I'm not saying that like, oh, feel bad. I'm saying that because that is the, the honest to goodness truth is that the journey is tough, even when things look good. Um, and I think having help for that is important. So Renee could handle the ugliest stuff with my parents. I would go to her and I would say, I just do not know this answer. I love them, but I cannot survive in this dynamic. And we would work through it. And if your lens is self-love, you begin to take more responsibility. I think that's what I was trying to get at before is you start taking responsibility for understanding and learning how your own world can give you what you need without it coming from the people that you think it needs to come from, be that husband, wife, mom, dad, sibling, whatever. Um, and I don't, I never understood that. I knew it. I've always had a high degree of belief in myself and a belief in God for real. I really do have a strong faith and that's really helped me. Um, but, but that self love journey was step by step, screwing it up, not setting a boundary, pulling back and like realizing what I needed. Like, let's say a conversation with my mom or my dad and being like, never doing that again. You know, I'll tell you one interesting thing is whenever I start feeling bad, sad, lonely, um, uncomfortable, you know, the first people, the first person I want to call is my mom. And that's been true forever. But what I've had to learn in like the last three, four years is I actually don't get what I need from my mom. And not in like a bad way. She's not providing for me. My mom loves me like, whoa, I know she does. But I've had to learn how to source myself because the kind of love that I want, that sort of unconditional like what it does feel like is my grandmother's love. So my grandmother was the one person in my life who I was like obsessed with since I was little. Um, and you know, there's people who you're in relationships and family relationships with where, you know, they love you, but then there's relationships where you feel loved. And that relationship with my grandmother is sort of the, 
a totem or whatever that word is that I hold up to like how I want to feel when I feel loved. And I just tried to give myself that kind of love. And I just, it was messy. I had to learn how to do that. Like every single time I had to talk to myself, I had to talk to the little girl inside that had like a lot of anger and a lot of grief and a lot of straight up rage. I wanted to deck my family and my parents for most of my life. (laughs) Um, And I literally, I remember we were on a family vacation to Puerto Rico um, three years ago. So it was at the height of like, you know, not really great times. And I remember we were on, it was like a boat or it was, I don't know. I I don't remember exactly where we were, but I had to excuse myself because I was getting really uncomfortable with the dynamics that were happening, super codependent dynamics. And I had to like take myself away and talk to my inner child. Sounds like the cheesiest thing on the planet. And it's, it's like so powerful for me. I was like, listen, I'm here for you. I know what you need because I, I do know what I need. You know what you need. I think we all know what we need in some ways. It's just, we've been looking for it from all these other people and like their versions of what that love looks like. And so I just would have conversations with myself. I journaled like crazy. I mean, I've always journaled, but the last few years has really revealed a lot of like helpful things in my journaling. Um, setting boundaries is huge with self-love for me because I'm a classic overgiver, especially when it comes to my family. Like I will just give of myself, like even with my sister's wedding, like I spent three months out of my whole life, like not even really working, preparing for this wedding, you know? And if she's getting married on September 2nd, my dad's like, okay, so you'll come home August 2nd. I'm like, no, not a, who the hell comes home 30 days before a wedding? Like, why would I do that? But it's just this like tendency to like prioritize everything over family. And, you know, I've always felt weird when people say like, oh, like what's the most important thing in your life? Like family and friends and then my work and this. And my answer when I want to say family and I love my family. I don't think I could survive without my family, truly. But I, my answer has always felt wrong. I've always said for other people, I, you know, I've always written family and it's felt wrong because what's real, what's actually real is myself. It's myself first. And people sometimes don't get that. I'm definitely seen in some ways as like weird or selfish or whatever, but, um, the people that know me and that are closest to me, like my parents or my siblings, they, they sort of get it now. My siblings definitely do. Um, but it's been a journey, journey. It's been a total journey. And it's like two steps forward, one step back. And right now we're in a good holding ground <laughs> because uh, I, I also think when you move away, you know, there's obviously less, like being in Detroit was definitely like an incubator, you know? cause I was there, but right now we're in a, in a good space because I'm setting boundaries and because I'm really aware of self-love thing, but it's always two steps forward and one step back. I think it will be pretty much for the rest of my life. And, you know, as I keep working and, and managing my, my tools. Yeah. So 
I think that you teed up my next question kind of perfectly because you have mentioned boundaries over and over and over throughout our conversation. Yeah. And the reason it struck me in particular was um, I was having actually a dinner with one of our, our podcast listeners uh, in India when I was there recently. And we were talking about relationships and I you know, talked talk about the dating coaches I'd hired and the therapists I'd seen and all the, the sort of work that I had done. And she said, from all these people that you've interviewed, the books that you've read, uh, dating coaches and therapy, what's the most important thing you've learned about relationships? Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I, until that moment, I didn't know what it was. And I said, you know what? I said, now that you've asked me, mm-hmm. I know what it is. It is a lack of boundaries. Mm-hmm. That is the common pattern between every relationship that's been a complete disaster because of the fact that I was raised in a situation where we were taught that it wasn't okay to have boundaries. Right. And I really wonder, you know, how you go from being a person who didn't have boundaries to one who does. <laughs> That's such a crazy question. I don't think I'm a person who has rock solid boundaries even right now. Um, there's a wonderful woman named Melody Beatty, B-E-A-T-T-I-E. She is the queen bee of boundaries. She's got books called Codependent No More, Language of Letting Go. Um, I just, I, there's like seven books of hers that I read at a time. And, you know, I had to learn and I had to understand what codependency was and what boundaries were. I just did not know. I would give every last hour, every last brain space, heart space, all of it over to my family or my siblings or the person that I was with at the time. And it actually drove me totally insane and to burnout and um, to like poor health, like just physically, because you can't sustain giving um, like that. So the way I went from it, nothing that I've ever done in terms of like going from a good thing to a bad thing has been looked clean. It's never been clean. It's always been super messy. Um, but the good thing about me is I also know I don't know everything and I also get a lot of support. So one really great way I learned how to set boundaries was through my self-love coach, Renee. And she is literally like a boundary ninja. And she taught me, literally taught me how to set boundaries here. And with this person, and maybe I could set it up this way in this structure. Um, I'm still working on it in some relationships. I still haven't set boundaries in some relationships, but I've set a lot of of different ones in others. Um, so I think if you're out there trying, if you're an overgiver, or you grew up in a codependent family, or some there's some type of like dysfunction there. Um, and that doesn't have to look like crazy, like abuse or, or something super negligent. It can just look like some kind of dysfunction that feels trauma, traumatic for you. I really recommend number one, getting someone who's done it and getting support. I think reading Melody Beauty is, I mean, I read Codependent No More last night, Srini. I read it last night. I read it over and over and over again. It's there are three of her books are by my bedside on my nightside table. Um, and then it's messy when you're practicing in real life. So like if I'm setting a boundary, I know I'm going to get scared before I do it. I know it's going to be harder with some personalities than with others. Um, and sometimes it totally backfires. 
You know, that's what like, I was going to ask you next is, oh is what happened? How do you, Jesus. how do you deal with that backfires? Because I, I know like my, my litmus test for boundaries is my mother and <laughs> like 98% of the time it's a losing battle. Like that's I'm a hard one to start with Srini. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's probably like, you know, that, that's a bit like trying to take down the United States in war yeah, or something. You gotta, you know, you gotta start country. with like your mailman or something. Yeah. Um, no, fair. that I, I can't start starting with my parents setting boundaries is the hardest thing ever. I have made a lot of progress with my siblings. I like to say about my siblings that we can go all the way. Like we can really make progress together because we're of the same generation and we get that emotional health and mental health is super important. Like my parents Mm. don't give a shit about mental health. They're like, why do you kids have so many different questions? (laughs) Which is really strange because they're doctors, like, and your sister's a psychiatrist of all yes. people, like well, you my, would think. My sister gets it, but I don't think it's strange at all. I yeah. don't think our parents, and maybe I, I can't speak for yours. Yeah. My parents did not have the space to ask existential questions. To oh ask, yeah, mine either. Like they didn't have like so many different career choices. Their parents weren't there. They literally didn't have like super strong emotional connections with their parents. Like my parents moved from Africa at very young ages. And then they moved to India to do med school. And then they moved to America where no one except some of their siblings were like mental health, emotional health, relationships with your parents, figuring out how to speak to each other, boundaries. They like cannot understand. My parents cannot for the life of them understand how they had three emotional kids. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me because in this lifetime, I think your family, you come into a family to literally work on this stuff. So I believe I conjured my family in order to learn these lessons. But like my mom, her constant (laughs) phrase is like, I don't understand why you're so emotional, (laughs) you know? And it's like that that thing. Like she has no, I've given her the book codependent no more. I've tried to have family meetings about (laughs) sitting down. Like I literally, we all had intervention. Oh, I can only imagine how this has all gone down. Like I'm just imagining this in my head and it sounds comical. It's so bad. It's, it's backfired. The amount of things that have backfired on me and that have ended in like me just weeping are so many. I can't even count. I have spent more time in my car driving around Detroit, Detroit crying than I have like actually making good progress with my parents. But, (laughs) you know, the only thing I can say about that is it teaches me also that uh, this is where acceptance and surrender comes in. If I have done everything to try to meet someone where they are, and if we've tried to like really get each other, I mean, sometimes I'll talk to my dad and he'll say, oh, is this going to be, is this like an emotional conversation? And I'll say, yeah. And he's like, okay, because you know, I can only, he's like, I don't know how much I can take, which is like huge progress, right? <laughs> like he, like now he understands that like, if his daughters want to have an emotional conversation, it's going to take a lot of his bandwidth. And he doesn't actually know. He doesn't know how to have an emotional conversation. So I'll say, dad, I feel upset about this. And he'll actually say, I don't understand what you just said. (laughs) And it's like, I mean, that's huge progress for us because before it, you know, it's like a shitstorm. And so 
I think I might never get to the point where I feel fully understood by my parents or that we're all in quote unquote harmony. Um, but I am trying to look at things more like net net. You know, if my dad calls and he's like, it's so cold outside and you need to be wearing your coat. And my mom is like, please text me when you get home, even though I'm literally thousands of miles away and I could leave at 2 a.m. and she would not know, right? Mm -hmm. I have sort of been like, all right, like I kind of just, you know, I got to just pick my battles. I get this is how they're showing their love and whatever. I can get to where I need to go with my siblings. And if we can't get there like with my siblings, then it becomes like, Hey, we need to look at this. But if I can't get all the way there with my parents right now, like who the fuck cares? Like, I know I'm starting to learn how to love myself. I'm getting on with my life. Like it becomes all that seeking from them becomes less important. When I grasp and seek and want to feel so validated by them, that's when shit hits the fan and I can hold, I hold really strongly to like, why don't you understand me? Or why can't you just, you know, I think that's, that's been a really big learning for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. 
Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.